President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, goes Montana! He will fall in fire! Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting, and personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Stories from the Head End the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm Diane Christman, Senior Vice President and Chief Program Officer of the Cable Center. This season, we're exploring the many facets of innovation within the cable broadband industry. We're presenting brand new content as well as segments curated from the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Today's episode, an Entrepreneurship Academy session with Coleman Breland. Breland is past president, Turner Content Distribution and Turner Classic Movies. He oversaw the domestic distribution and marketing of Turner's entire portfolio of domestic networks, including TNT, TBS, CNN, True TV, TCM, and Cartoon Network. As president of TCM, he was responsible for the oversight of new distribution opportunities, digital brand extensions, e-commerce, and direct-to-consumer engagement opportunities. Here, Breland speaks to a class at the Cable Center's Entrepreneurship Academy, an eight-week program which targets early and mid-career rising stars in the cable broadband industry and gives them the tools to innovate and affect change within their organization's existing corporate structures. Breland takes the students through what he's learned throughout his media career and gives advice on how to identify and harness innovation from a variety of sources. This session was recorded in 2018. Congratulations to all of you. Uh, I was hearing about the program. I've heard, of, heard about it a few weeks ago when you all came to town. It sounds utterly fantastic. I would love to have gone through this program. Um, let's do this. I'm going to talk for a little bit, and then if you want to interrupt me, that's absolutely great uh, with, a, with questions. We can do it like that. We can just make it a dialogue. If not, at the end, if you want to ask something, you absolutely can. Please don't worry about the awkward moment where somebody's like, oh, God, no one's raising their hand. He must feel really weird. If you don't want to ask a question, that's fine, too. Now, a little bit of a code here on the questions. If we get to those and you ask me something and I know the answer really well, I'm going to go, that is a great question. All right? If I know part of it, I'm going to go, that's a good question. And if I don't know jack about it, I'm going to go, that's an interesting question. And probably very obtuse, okay? So you can just sort of grade my responses based on that, that little code. Um, I got a call last week uh, from... Uh, someone's son who is wanting to get in the business. They're in the business. They're on the film side of the business. And uh, the son would like to get in the cable business. And he's working at Deloitte right now in consulting. And he's talking about how do I break in the business? And we're talking about it. And then he said, what's the best business book you're reading now? And I'm thinking, oh, geez, I'm not reading, I'm not reading business books. And then suddenly I'm like, no, wait, I am. I'm reading a phenomenal business book. It's called Empire of the Summer Moon. And it's about the rise and fall of the Comanche Empire in the 16 through the 1800s. And about this time, it's just dead silence on the other end of the phone. And it's like, okay, I didn't ask what you're reading. I asked about your business book. And I said, it is a business book because it touches on leadership, 
innovation, and understanding your marketplace. I said it touches on leadership because the Comanches were absolutely the most powerful tribe. And when you say tribe, lots of times people will think, well, that means there's one chief of the tribe. Not true. Comanches had like eight bands, and then there, there were chiefs. There was a war chief and a, a peace chief. I'm not sure what the benefits and office space was like, depending on if you were the war chief or the police or, or the peace chief, but it, they were very different. Well, the most fierce leader of the Comanches was, um, last name was Parker, Quantum Parker. Uh, his mother was kidnapped. Uh, she was, came with the settlers. She was kidnapped, married an Indian chief, and he becomes this phenomenal leader of his band. And in their phenomenal leadership lessons, when you read the book on how he motivated the group, what it was, honor among the tribe, the, uh, it was a basic obligation. Someone falls in battle, you pick them up. Now, the way they picked them up was usually on horseback because the Comanche were only one of two tribes that actually fought on horseback. Think about that. Watch Warner Brother movies or any movies and you say, oh, the Apaches are coming and they're on horseback. No, not true. They rode on horseback and then they got off and they fought. Comanches used horseback and horses like technology. This was their big innovation because they took, horses came over, actually we didn't have any horses here, right? Horses came over via Spain through Mexico and were introduced here. And the Comanche, and there was like the Iberian Mustang was the horse and it was great for the desert. Well, the Comanches were the masters. They were the masters at training. They were the masters at breeding, which is very difficult. And they turned this, was their source of enormous wealth and power, was understanding horses. So horses were their innovation. And that was, their, that was truly how they became the greatest, greatest um, band of American Indians. It was absolutely a fascinating story. Now, I can't tell you how it ends because I'm only like halfway through. I'll, I'll, I'll read a little bit more, but um, I love some of the things they did. Like the kids started riding as soon as they could stand up. And at six years old, both boys and girls were accomplished on a horse. They could do incredible things. The Comanche warriors could actually, at a full gallop, lean to the side and shoot 20 arrows before a soldier could fire one shot and reload the musket. Think about that. So this is all leadership. This is all innovation. They understood the horse was their technology. This is how we're going to compete. This is how we're going to control Buffalo. This is how we're going to control 800 miles. So this is my business book. You should really read it because then you can learn about business in all capacities. So for me, this is actually probably one of the top 10 business books I've ever read. I've read a lot of business books, but it's a great book and you'll, you'll enjoy it if you happen to pick it up. You'll like that. So, um, Let's talk a little bit about, it, it doesn't matter whether it's the 1600s, the 1800s, or now, it's just a question of how the clock moves, right? What's happening to our lives and you know, how they're being disrupted or rewarded in different ways, but there's always some degree of innovation. And I will tell you, my first job coming out of grad school, I made $17,500 working for the satellite uplink facility for WTBS in Douglasville, Georgia. Now, you're not gonna remember this, but there used to be 525 lines in a television picture, all right? 21 of those were a little black bar at the bottom, and the, the TV used to roll, and you'd have to and you'd nudge your assistant and go fix the hole, and you had to go and you'd adjust the button to keep the picture from rolling. Those lines you could actually insert data into, and I had the most boring first job. It was uh, running a service called Cable Fax. I'm sorry, Cable Text. <coughs> cable Text, and it was just there was a channel and it just had scrolling news on it, you know, just, you know, so many characters and that was it and it would go. And then we would sell space 
in the vertical blanket interval of the WTBS signal, which at that time was going to about 36 million homes in the country. And so the data would just piggyback the signal. It was absolutely great. I asked Brian when I got a tour here if there was actually the Motorola box that I used to work with, because we'd go to like New York Stock Exchange or Associated Press and say, hey, do you want to put your data and we can get it to a cable head in and it'll go through this box and it's going to be great and we've got speeds up to 2400 baud. <laughs> I say that now and everybody's like, what is baud? Um, so, but at that time it was incredibly innovative. And what I love about this industry, there's nothing like the cable industry. There is nothing. I truly believe I have had a charmed career because I, I got to come into it when um, Ted Turner was running Turner Broadcasting. And I will tell you, if you were lucky enough to ever work around someone that is that mercurial, that brilliant, that um, visionary, it's an amazing thing. I mean, we, we'd go to work and we, we didn't know what we were really going to do until somebody said, well, this is what Ted wants us to do. And we do whatever Ted wanted to do, right? And this is why he created what he created. So to watch an innovator like that work was so... Um, awe-inspiring. Now, you know, you might get in trouble with Ted or, or he, he might, you know, he might come at you for a couple things, but um, out of my 34 years of working, 24 of them have been at Turner. And when I think about those and I think about innovation and what I've learned, I wanted to share a few things with you because um, when you spend time around creators and when you look at the pictures on this wall, and the people who stood up and really could see what they were doing, that's what this business is built on. I mean, I've got friends who have very boring jobs, and they have for all the years that I've worked at Turner. And they're so envious going, wow, what's it like to work at a company that's centered around innovation? Well, it's not just Turner, right? You had to have the, the cable operators who were visionary enough to change set-top boxes and figure out how to improve speeds and service. It's all of that that goes together. And last year, I got to um, have lunch with Ted Turner again because he's been out of the company for a while. You know, that's, it's, um, it was interesting. It was a small group of us at Ted's Montana Grill, because, you know, he's into bison now. He's a lot of biggest, you know, big, big bison. And we go and um, uh, we've got a little, it's not a private room, right? Because Ted wouldn't, wouldn't think about a private room. You had a curtain. We did get a curtain because we were with Ted. And the waiter came up and said, uh, he was taking orders, and he goes, uh, um, and I'm thinking the waiter knows it's Ted Turner, but I'm not really sure. And he goes, um, what would you like? And Ted said, I'll have three sliders. And the waiter says, beef or bison? And he looks at him and says, are you kidding me? And then he says, no, I'll have three french fries with that. Well, this was, um, if anyone saw the CBS um, Sunday morning, did anyone see it? Ted Koppel interviewing Ted. Um, wonderful, sad, heart-wrenching, reflective. It was fascinating. Um, at the lunch, Ted was like that too. And he, we went, we went around and he go, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? And um, it was funny, the, the general manager, a good friend of mine, Ken Jouts, who runs Headline News, when he said, oh, Ted, I'm running Headline News, he goes, bring back the will. I want the will back. You know, at 15 minutes, we got to bring that back. Um, and he was talking about what it would be like. He said, I only got $2 billion, but if they sell something to Turner, I want to buy it. And I'll come back to work. And we're all getting really excited. And Ted's going back to work. It's really cool. Um, and he talked a lot about his time, a little bit like the interview. And he said, you know, I, I just, I created the Goodwill Games. Does anybody remember the Goodwill Games? Goodwill Games, this was, this was Ted's version of the Olympics. And it was, he said at the table, he goes, you know, damn men. He said, they start all wars, hot wars, cold wars. 
but a lot of them like sports. So I created the Goodwill Games because I thought countries could always have something to talk to each other about. Wouldn't that be great? We'll always have a reason to go talk. We can fight about something, but let's go talk about, you know, the game. And you could just see the genius in such a simple idea. I mean, we're just, we're now, now he's got us. We're all leaning over the table going, this is great. This is Ted Turner. And then he says, you know, and I, I got along with people. I really did. He says, you know, Castro was my friend. He said, you know, I, I went hunting with him once uh, down in Cuba. And he said, I had a shotgun. I could have killed him. I didn't, but I could have killed him. Um, he said, we're, we're walking for quail and the quail aren't flying. So he said, you know, Fidel reaches over, gets on the walkie-talkie, and 10 minutes later, these MiG fighters come and just strafe the fields, and all these quails start rising. We're just pounding the birds. We're just shooting the birds. And I'm sitting at the table, and, and I told him when he finished the story, I said, I have to tell you, you have fed my family for almost a quarter of a century. I said, I, and I've worked within three miles of here. That just doesn't happen very much. I said, it, that's I, I why I say I, I feel charmed, because to be able to have that kind of experience of being around someone like that is magical. And if you work in this business, you're going to have that, because there's still a lot of phenomenal innovators. Um, things I've learned. Um, innovation sometimes comes from people with very um, big titles and a lot of power. Um, like Ted, right? It's his company. He could, he could do anything. Um, it also comes from other people in positions of power. I think um, years ago, when Brian Roberts and Jeff Bukas, who was running Time Warner at the, at the time, did a press conference, talked about working together for TV everywhere, that was phenomenal leadership. That really was. Because, look, the industry's gotten a little, a little bumpy. Right? And it got bumpy because uh, the subgrowth started slowing down around 2009, 2010. Right? When, the, when you're adding a million-plus subs a year, the business is easier. You go to budget meetings, and you look really smart, right? Because you're always talking about the growth numbers. Well, I'm going to grow... This much next year, and like, wow, you're really great. Well, that's just going to be organic growth of subs. Well, when that stopped, it added some tension. So it's, it's a little tense. We still all get along, and we figure out a way to do it. And I think we'll enter another era where we'll work even more closely together, programmers and distributors, because we desperately need each other to do a really good job. So big titles can get things done, but I will tell you, my time at Turner, outside of Ted and some other examples, the real innovators didn't have the biggest titles. And they made some of the biggest differences. And I'll give you an example. There's a gentleman named Tyler Moody at, at Turner. Worked over at CNN, and he was doing some podcasts. And he came to see me. See, I've been there for like forever, right? I mean, there are only like a handful of us. We call ourselves the Ted. So you got to go see the old people, right? Now like, I'm that guy. I don't know when I became that guy. Because I got to Turner, and I'm like, wow, look at some of these people. They've been here a long time. Now that's me. I don't know. I went from like Luke Skywalker to Han Solo now I think I'm Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I'm just dreading the Yoda years. That's just going to be bad. But um, it'll be wise, but I'll just shrink. Um, but he came to see me, and he said, I think there's a, there's a chance. What if, what if Cartoon starts doing podcasts, and we do them for Turner Classic Movies? And, and so he worked on a phenomenal business plan, all on his own, right? Now, he's still worked doing his day job, but he wanted to take it really big. At that time, I think he was probably director level. I don't care what anybody's titles are. I, I got three presidents' titles. I, you can almost get them in the vending machine sometimes in this industry. It doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't. This guy had a phenomenal idea. He worked up his business plan. He found people who would support it. He came up with the budget. And he was willing to then step away from what he was doing and take the risk to really build this. And now he's doing, you know, I don't even know what he's up to in podcasts. And he's building the business. By the way, he's not making money right away, right? You've got to get to a certain level to make money with sponsorships or ads. But the visibility of what that does to reach it makes us rethink 
How should we do our talent contracts for Turner Networks? If you're on a Turner Network, um, I need you to do 10 podcasts a year. And so it gives us a way to expand the business. That came from one person who just believed in it. So you don't want to wait for it to come on high. I mean, not everybody gets the chance to draft Ted Turner. Okay, it just doesn't happen. So you have to do it yourself. And those are the people that are going to change the companies. Because if the, the interesting thing is you look at that and, and you talk about different examples and how you start it, a lot of it comes down to how you pose the question and what you do. I was in a budget meeting um, years ago, and there was a show that was on TBS. We're doing a lot of comedies. And there was a show about dating. And someone in ad sales, the other side of the house, the other revenue house, because I used to, for, for 23 years, I would negotiate the deals with cable operators. So um, I'm in the meeting, and someone says, well, you know what we want to do? There's this Match.com service that just came out. And we want to put the show, we want to premiere it on Match.com. And you can see all the ad people, this is great, we're going to make more money. And I'm sitting there, because it always comes back. If you work in distribution, it, you're sort of like, I don't know, you're maybe like the Comanche, you're a bit of a nomad, because the networks think that you love your distributors more than you love them. And the distributors think you love the networks more than you love them. And the truth is you love them both because they need each other. They, they desperately need each other. So you're always caught in that, middle, that little middle spot. I was a middle kid. Anybody a middle kid? Aren't you always the negotiator, the arbitrator, the person who tries to make peace in the family? It just comes with it. So I've been the middle kid for 24 years at Turner. Well, anyway, someone says, this is a great idea. And then someone asks the question, what will the cable operators think? And I thought, well, that's really a dumb question. You're telling me that you want to take the premiere and put it on a dating site before they get it. And something happened right then in my head. It clicked. And I realized how many meetings and how many times I have or somebody else has asked absolutely the wrong question. Because the right question was this. If we're going to premiere it somewhere other than TBS, what could we do with the distributors that would make them be okay with this? Like, could we give them extra ad time? Could we, what, what could we do? And so as you're thinking about innovating, be very careful with that first question because it will really take you down a path of great discovery or a path of pain or sometimes both, but that is really important. Just, I've now changed you, you don't even know it, but you're gonna to start to listen when you're in meetings and people go, well, how do, what if we do this? And you're gonna go, God, that wasn't a way to say that. And you'll watch meetings and directions and strategies go the wrong way, just because of that. So think about the question that you have to ask. Um, if you don't control the money, you've absolutely gotta find the people who do. Because the innovation doesn't necessarily come out of the CFO office. Although I'll tell you about a CFO we had at Turner who did, because he supported it. So this was um, years ago. We were a group of us were looking at just the competition in the news space. Because when Ted launched CNN, right, there wasn't a Fox News, there wasn't an MSNBC, but there was more competition, and the internet was coming about. And we're like, what can we do to improve the CNN experience? So one of the things we thought about was. Well, what if we let, this is sort of the early days of sort of rewind, what if we create the application whereby you're watching Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room, but you want to rewind and just go back and you'll pick up right where you were. Um, you can go back and forth in a 24-hour window. And so we came up with this fascinating model that would allow us to do this. We called it CNN Go. And you could go back to Aaron Burnett or wherever you want to go 
and you could see it. But not only did you get to sort of rewind, because that's simple, right? That sounds like, oh, great, so you got a DVR and you rewind. No, you'd go back, and whatever the story was, there'd be five supporting stories of extra video or extra text that you could go deeper in the stories. So it's the first incarnation of personalization of news for CNN. Um, well, there's one problem, and this is what you'll always find with innovation. There's never money, right? There's never any money. Um, I offered to do bake sales, and uh, that wouldn't have been enough, but we went to go see, we put together a phenomenal plan, and I realized something. If you go in with 90% fact and strategy and 10% passion, you will get no one's attention. If you inverse that and go in with 90% passion, 10% fact, they will throw you out of the room. Okay? So we actually found the right mix with this. We did 70% fact, business plan models, break even, what it looks like, pros, cons, all that, and 30% passion, like we weren't going to leave until we got the answer. And I, um, I sat down with the CFO, um, at Turner at the time, a gentleman named John Campy. I had like, I don't know, 24 pages. You know, you have to do decks now. They used to be called presentations. But, you know, now there's the deck. So I'm getting, you know, I'm talking about it, why we think we should do it. It'll give us a chance to work more closely with our distributors because this could be in their set-top box. This extra value for CNN. That helps with license fees, and it gives us something other to talk about other than here's what I want you to pay me for the networks. No, I don't want to pay you that, and we just throw chairs. This would be really great. I thought I was going to have to sell him hard. I didn't get to the seventh page before he said, I will fund this out of the corporate budget. Because he didn't have the money. So you'll be surprised where ideas come from. But you've got to find the person with the money if you want your idea to get through. And so there's an example of where, how we actually find, found somebody. Um, just because you love innovation, since you've been here talking about innovation inside of companies, that doesn't mean everybody in the company is going to. All right. This is a business that has been, it's the perfect business model. I love this model. I love to say to the networks, you know, when, whatever their, their issue may be, I'm like, you know what's great? You got paid last night by 90 million subscribers. Whether they watched it or not, this is a great business. You should love this business. Um, but not everyone will think like that because when you've got a really good business, it's, somehow, it's sometimes hard to innovate, right? Because people don't want to let go of the business. By the way, I come up through the traditional side. I'm doing deals. I'm bringing in revenue for the company. Um, so when ideas come about, you have to think, if I'm going to disrupt the business model, is this the time to disrupt it? And can it live in tandem? And what I mean by that is I was, a couple years ago we had a meeting um, with the networks and technology and a concept came up, which was, well, why don't we just take our networks and we'll go direct to consumer? That's we'll do that right. We'll just do a package, turn our networks. Sounds easy, right? I mean, because we just bought iStream Planet, so we would have had the tech stack to do that. And, Thought we could get it up and running, and everybody's getting all excited. I love this. Everybody gets all excited. Billion dollar idea, billion dollar idea. Everybody's all excited. I'm not saying a word. And I'm just sort of waiting. And then one of the heads of the networks looks at me and goes, he'll hate it. I said, well, hate's a strong word. Um, I said, I'm wondering about the viability of it and when and how. I said, I haven't seen a lot of bad ideas. I've seen a lot of good ideas at the wrong time. I said, so the question, let's talk about your idea first. So your idea is you want to take the 10 Turner networks and you want to put them in a package and sell them. Okay, so right now, according to my count, um, average number of SVOD services in the homes in America are about three to four. So people have cable and then they'll have Hulu and they'll have Netflix. And they'll have, so we want to go and we want to sell this package. Um, one of the things I love about our portfolio is there's something for everybody, all right? If, um, you know, if you like the edgy animation, you've got Adult Swim. If we've got news, we've got comedy, we've got drama, we've got NCAA, we've got NBA, we've got 
MLB, we got PGA. It's, there's something for everybody. I said, but you know what? I don't know if that's the way the business is going. Because the person who's going to want Cartoon Network may not want CNN. Or the person who wants news may not have any kids, so they don't want cartoons. So we're sort of packed. This seems to be the different way of going. I said, but what's interesting, I said, I just had um, breakfast two days ago with the CEO of a cable company. And we talked about going direct to consumer. And I said, he wasn't speaking about us in particular. He just talked about, I know networks are feeling a lot of pressure. I wonder when they'll want to go direct to consumer with the same product, right? Same thing you can get through the cable operator and you just go direct. And he goes, you know, that's, I understand why people might want to do that. And I shared this with the room. I said, this is not just my opinion. It was, well, that, that could work, but if you're going to do that, may, do I take you out of the bundle then? Do I, do I take all the Turner Networks out that I have and I just tell my customers, hey, good news, your retail price just went down. If you want the Turner Networks, you can buy them over here, a la carte in a package, and I'll just bring it down the data side of the pipe. I'll integrate it back in the set-top box and I'll go in the guide. I said, that's not, they I said, this person didn't say this to me like, as a threat, like, hey, if you do that, I'm going to drop you. They're just thinking about the model. I said, so why don't we do this instead? Instead of that, and right now you can see people go, well, there goes the billion-dollar idea. He killed a billion-dollar idea. I said, because you can lose $6 billion very quickly and make a billion. Um, I said, the idea is not wrong, but how about this? How about going forward when distributors are capable of, of doing this and they decide inside their set-top box they want it to be store-like? and have an app for something like this, you say, hey, I'm here to negotiate a deal with you on the Turner Networks, the way we've always had it. Um, and in addition, you've got, you've got high-speed customers that don't take it. Why don't we offer a package of Turner Networks, and I'll cut you up. Why don't we do it like that? And this is where it gets really interesting in innovation because you've got a lot of, we need to attack the model. That's not true. Sometimes innovation can support the existing model and the way that you embrace your partners and the way they come into this. Um, other things, um, if you're going to innovate, you have to align your expectations, this is very important, with the people who are paying for it. You need to agree on what the commitment really is, whether you're launching a new service, a new idea, whatever it is, because you'll find, and you probably already are, you go to meetings, and when you leave, everybody went to a different meeting in their mind. They remember things differently. It's just sort of funny how it works. Um, so you have got to get a commitment. If you're going to be like Tyler and start, start a podcast business or whatever it happens to be, you've got to get a commitment of time to be able to turn profit. You've got to get the investment money. You've got to make sure you're staffed appropriately. And then you've got to make sure they'll leave you alone and let you do it. And when money gets tight, they don't come back and say, I've changed my mind. And then what is really important, if you're going to be entrepreneurs, you get a lifeline. Okay, not all companies are good at this. You've got to be careful, right? I've got a really good, I'm going to, a good idea. I'm going to do it. And they go, that's great. Go to your good idea, and then if the good idea doesn't work, you're like, okay, I want to come home. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> There's not a lifeline back. So companies have got to reward people who can, who can be so daring that they'll change their career trajectory because they think they've found a new customer experience that will be so good they're willing to bet their career and change the trajectory. Because it could be good or bad, right? You can go chase something and maybe it doesn't work out. Have a really, what, what is a good idea? Because there are a lot of good ideas, but in... In business, the good idea eventually has to make money or have value in some capacity to be able to make that. So find your sponsors very carefully as you do this, but get that commitment. Make sure somebody's not just, hey, the money's flowing in and I love innovation. And then when the rain comes, people change their mind. So that's very important. Watch for that. Um, and then are you, are you where innovation is really respected? And if you're not and that's important to you, then you should work somewhere else. 
you know, don't, we, I ended up eavesdropping on a conversation at the table about resumes and, um, you know, what's it like if your resume uh, has choppy times on it? What if you're only there eight months, a year? What does it look like? Um, uh, you, you want the commitment. I don't think that's bad, by the way. Just a little side note on resumes. I, I don't care where you go to school. I really don't. I tell people all the time, oh, really, Harvard? That's fantastic. Good backup school if you can't get in University of Georgia. It always gets people. They love that. Um, the, the people aren't quite sure. They're like, is it that good? Really, Georgia? Um, it doesn't matter. Uh, your tenure of time, you look for when you're hiring, I've hired a lot of people, I look for just, I'm looking for passion. I want people that literally... Uh, literally love to come to work and they're good to their colleagues and they communicate well and they don't hoard information. I had four reports. When I was running distribution, I had four reports. Now we've got about just under $6 billion a year coming in. So a lot of money, a lot of pressure, a lot of expectations. And we sat down and I said, all right, here's the good news. You're the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine. You all get to run your divisions. I will not micromanage you at all. You have budgets. You know what your authority is. If you have, if you're going to um, run afoul of a distributor, if you're going to run into internal politics or impact budget or long-range plan, please involve me before that happens. Or as you get a sense that's going to happen. Otherwise, just go run and run your business. And I said, one other thing, and now this is going to be counter to everything you've been taught in a competitive world. If you want to get promoted, I promote people who make those around them smarter. So you have to make those three people smarter, and that's what I want. Can you be that person? That's what I look for when I hire people. I can hire superstars all day long. Uh, you, you can always get the people that can come in and light it up, but it doesn't mean they've created the culture and the type of environment you want. So just on that side, when you're looking for people and you're hiring, that's, I'm looking for communications. I'm, I, I saw an article on uh, CNN.com a few years ago. I sent it to a friend because his son was going to college. He's trying to figure out what to major in. and It was, it was different than when I came through. Back then, everybody wanted to get an, an MBA. Nothing wrong with MBAs, but everybody's like, you've got to have an MBA or you're not going to make it. Um, and I sent the article, and there was uh, one of the founders, I think of, uh, I, think it was, I think it was BlackRock, uh, said, I would rather have a nice person than an MBA, and I have an MBA from Harvard. And I found that very telling. It's great for me, because I suck at math, and I got, a, I got a master's in film and radio and TV, so I was really happy about that. But don't do things on your resume just because you think it'll look good to somebody. I tell you, people look for passion. They look for communication. They look for all those types of things. Side note on that, because it ties into innovation. Um, but you really want to make sure as you do this and you think about innovating in your company, you find the right people to sponsor you, okay? And then find out if your company can do it. I, I, th I think it was last year. So, uh, you know, there's the Cable 100 power list. I got on it. I got on it because the PR person just keeps sending my name. I'm convinced. But anyway, if you stick around long enough, you'll get on there. So I'm on there. It's funny. I took the magazine home, and I said, hey, kids, look. Man, my kids get the magazine, they're going through, they're like, Dad, there's like a thousand people in here. It's not a hundred people, it's like a thousand. Look, number 51, there are like five people under here for a company. I mean, really? But the interesting thing wasn't that, although kids can put you in your place. Um, I think I said the greatest innovation I'd seen uh, in recent history was the Comcast X1 box, which I think it is. We were talking about, you know, audio navigation, which is utterly fantastic. By the way, scary for networks, right? Uh, Seinfeld, episode 14, where Kramer did X. There it is. You may not, you, maybe you'll get the bug that says it comes from TBS. So it's, it's scary, right? But as we talked about at lunch, if you're good at content, people are going to find your content because you're best at acquiring, you're best at creating it. Um, 
But the X1 box, I, this is a cable company that Ralph Roberts founded, and they can innovate to that degree. I think that box is utterly phenomenal. And I'm, I'm not saying that because we've got Comcast people in here. I, I think it's phenomenal. By the way, we've got Mediacom people in here too, right? Who's from Mediacom? Rocco yells at me. Can you make him stop that? We're doing our deal and he yells at me and he yells at me and oh, you can't do this to me. And I'm like, wait, didn't you make the billionaires stop? Why? Oh, he yells, yells, and he hugs me. I love Rocco. I love Rocco. I love that man. I went by the Rocco Listening Center and I thought it meant stop and listen to Rocco. So I, Brian was giving me a tour and I just stopped. And I just waited for the speaker to open up and it was gonna be Rocco's voice. Um, these are the personalities you get in cable. These are the kind of people that you get to work around and it is incredible. I am so envious you're where you are. I will tell you, you will not believe how quickly you'll be where I am. It is, it is so fast because you'll have so much fun. I have never had a boring day, ever. I've had hard days, I've had long nights, especially in negotiations. I've never had a day that I didn't go, wow, I love being in this business. And as you go through, uh, this is personal, so I want you to think about this. Um, and if it resonates for you, great. If it doesn't, you know, just throw it out. But there's certain things that I've, I've noticed, and that is how do you measure yourself as you go through your career? You know, when I came out of undergrad, I had an English <laughs> in undergrad, I thought I'd, I'd teach. And then I realized uh, I sort of like making money too, so um, I'll go back and teach later because I think education is so important. But um, my friends were like, you're gonna starve. You know, what are you gonna do with a liberal arts degree? You can sleep on my sofa. I love this. I'm gonna, I got a job at Duke Power. I'm gonna make $31,000. You're going to be poor. You can sleep on my sofa. They meant it so, so nicely, so nicely. Um, but I never me measured anything in money or title, right? Because those come and go. You can start your own company to tomorrow and call yourself czar, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. That really is not a measure. Like I told you, greatest innovation outside of TED and people like Brian Roberts and others, it, it comes within the ranks. That's where it really comes. But I thought about talking to you. And, and if someone, if you said, well, well how'd you measure things? As you went through 20, uh, 34 years of work, sucked at math. You can make it. Those of you non-math people, you can make it. Because um, I was smart enough to hire really smart marketing people, or math people. But I thought about how did I measure it? And it's funny, because I, um, I thought I measured it really in moments and different times in the career where I literally felt Alive, so alive at that moment that it carried me until the next time I had one. I remember my first meeting with Ted Turner, where literally I had to go into Ted Turner. It was the most frightening, wonderful, horrific thing I think I've ever gone through. It was, I'd just taken a job running marketing for the Turner Networks with all the distributors. So um, Ted was not happy, okay? Ted was very unhappy because CNN FN, which we have since shuttered, it was a network, it was CNN CNNFN, which if you spell it out, Cable News Network, the financial network. There was an anchor named Lou Dobbs. I'm not sure where Lou is now. I think he's on Fox. But anyway, Lou used to go fishing with Ted all the time. And he would just complain and complain about, I want my own network, Ted. I want my own network. And finally, Ted said, okay, I'll give you a network. Well, what he really gave him was part of CNN International's 24-7. But anyway, we called it a network. Off we go. Um, and it dawned on me that it was hard to get, it was starting to get harder to get distribution. So Ted was mad, and I got a call from Terry McGurk. Some of you remember that name. Terry was Ted's right hand for almost 30 years. And Terry said, okay, I've got an assignment for you. You have, um, Ted wants to run an ad campaign, and basically say to any of the operators, if you don't carry CNN, you're a sucker. And I'm like, oh God, this sounds bad. He goes, well, yeah, 
He said, don't do it. And I'm like, wait a minute, I don't understand. He goes, no, no, you got to do the ad campaign because Ted wants the ad campaign. But don't, don't, don't do anything aggressive. All right, we just got to see if this passes. Well, so I'm like, God, okay, great. So what do you do in, in advertising? You start with what the client wants. So I started with a sucker man campaign. We're literally there are two suits or shirts, whatever. And, and one of them's a person's head and the other one's a sucker head. It's like, you know, guess which one doesn't Gary see an FM? Just to sort of start, I could go backwards, right? So I thought, this is brilliant. I'm so creative. I'm going to be dead. Um, I didn't think I was going to have a speaking role, but I thought I'll at least carry the storyboards. So I go back and do like five campaigns, and I go to meet with Terry and a couple other people that were very hot at Turner at the time. And, um, you know, they're looking through them and, you know, okay, this looks fine. This looks fine. Okay, this. And then we got to the sucker ad, and Terry McGurk said, well, whatever you do, don't show this to Ted, because he'll say run it. And then we got to run it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is... This just feels weird all of a sudden. I don't, I don't know what to do. Okay, okay, got it. Okay, well, Ted's ready. We got to go. And suddenly we're walking down the hall and I'm carrying the storyboards. And I'm thinking, I'm just the lackey carrying the storyboards. And somebody goes, Coleman, we'll let you present these to Ted. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> my wife is one week away from having a child, our first child. And I'm like, this could go bad and I could get fired today. Um, so my enthusiasm suddenly turned into, uh-oh. So we go in and we, you know, there, there's sofa and chairs. And back then, you know, t before these were big, a lot of big screens, Ted had a big screen TV. The outside office was like Citizen Kane, Orson Welles. Ceiling to floor, magazine, frame magazine covers of Ted. From America's Cup to Broadcasting Cable to all the, all the publications. You walk in and there's Debbie as assistant. She's always so nice. And you, we walk in and there are four of us. There's me, Terry, and two other executives. And we go, and I start to sit down. I'm like, don't sit there. That's where Ted sits. I'm like, okay, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. So I go, and I, you know, I, I sit somewhere else, and, and I, we're waiting. And then Ted comes in, and Ted's so loud. You hear, it's before he ever comes in, you hear Ted, right? And so, you know, my heart's pounding because I haven't thought about how I would present. I thought, it, I didn't think it would be me, right? So Ted comes, sits down. He's like, you work for me? You work for the ad agency? I say, oh, no, Ted, I work for you. Great, let's look at this. And um, I'd called a friend of mine who was running marketing for CNN at the time, and he goes, look, if you catch him on a bad day, just be careful. I'm like, okay, that's great advice. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. <laughs> so I go and we sit down, and I put the sucker man storyboard right here. I put the other four on this side. So I pull one out, and Ted looks at it and goes, damn it, and throws it across the room. And he goes, I don't like green. So he throws it, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, I got three more tries, okay? So I reach down and I pull up the next board. And he's like, that type's too small, I can't read it. Another storyboard gone. Now, McGurk and the other two people said, don't worry, when it gets rough, we'll jump in and help you. <laughs> All right, so I'm like, and they're sitting over there like this. I mean, they're not even looking, like, I, like they're not in the room. I mean, where were the Marines? Well, the next campaign, he didn't like that one any better. So now I'm down to like one other campaign to show him. Well, my left hand, I remember this so visibly, drops to my, my thigh like this, and Terry McGurk looks, and he looks at me and he goes, shakes his head like, don't you pull out Sucker Man. <laughs> and I wasn't gonna pull out Sucker Man, all right? I was not gonna pull it out. And then I thought, wait, this could be great. It's what Ted wants. I mean, it's like there's two voices, right? And so, this is what Ted wants, give Ted what he wants. The other one's like, no, don't do it, Terry will fire you. I'm like, well, Ted's gonna fire me if I don't give him what he wants. I'm like, God, I'm gonna get fired. So I look at Terry and I'm like, I'm not gonna and so I'm talking, and then Ted starts talking about, you know, other things, and he looks at me and goes, my daddy was a billboard man. And then he gave me this incredible story about his father and being in the billboard business, and, and I'm like, I've got one more try. So I pull it out, and I still have it. I have both these storyboards. It's a very dejected person sitting on the bench, and it's like, um, 
Great Depression, Black Monday, the day you realized how much you're paying for, um, for CNBC because CNFN had a lower rate. And he looks and he goes, I like this one. And I'm like, oh God, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, um, and he says, but I still can't read it. I'm like, okay, I'll do a double truck ad. I'll get it back to you, Ted. And we're, you know, we're, and right then Terry Mack goes, okay, kid, thanks for the time. And we're walking out and I'm going down the steps and my knees are like, like almost falling. And I'm, I'm, and Terry said, you did great. He didn't attack you at all. That was a great move. <laughs> and, and then he said, I'll get you an office and you can do this all the time. I said, no, I think that's your job. That's okay. Well, um, he goes back in to talk to Ted. He, he and a guy named uh, Steve Heyer, who, who um, uh, was president attorney at the time. And they're like, Ted, what's up? We, we don't understand. Um, and he goes, well, I'm just mad. I'm mad because I'm mad I want to buy NBC. And Jerry Levin and the board won't let me buy NBC. So I just, I, don't know, I, just, I just feel like having a fight with somebody. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So they tell me this. And I'm like, I got three days. Well, it ended up had seven because Ted was going to fly to China. And he flew next to Jack Welch and his new wife. And they were flying and he lands and he calls back to, to McGurk and Hire and says, you know, I just flew with Jack and his wife. They're really nice. I don't want to run a campaign because Jack Welch was running NBC at the time. And GE, NBC. And he goes, I don't, I don't want to hurt them. Let's not run the campaign. So I never had to finish the campaign. But Sucker Man still lives. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get that deep in that story. But that is a moment, obviously, that has a very big effect on my life. And uh, that was June 7th, 1999. Um, Let's see, another moment that mattered. I had a, a boss, a really smart guy named Andy Heller. He came up through HBO, Time Warner Cable, and then over to Turner. And um, great negotiator, uh, tough litigator. Um, you see Fred Dressler's picture on here. He was a negotiator at Time Warner Cable. Brilliant man. Um, they were a team. I mean, they were a tough team. So Andy Heller was my boss, and we were walking across in front of CNN Center, and we were debating something, and and suddenly he stops, like in the middle of traffic, right? I mean, it's a pretty crowd in front of CNN Center. And, um, you know, there's another family taking a picture in front of the big CNN, and, and literally he's yelling at me, and he goes, you don't get it. I want you to tell me what to do. And I'm like, huh? He goes, I want you to tell me what to do. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? I mean, I was rank and file. My father was a Marine DI before he was a child's dentist. I mean, sir, yes, sir, you march. What, what do you mean? I questioned the chain of command. It was another aha moment. And I realized I couldn't innovate, I couldn't do my job right unless I really told him what to do. That was so strange to me. So whoever you report to, if you've got somebody really good, they're gonna want you to tell them what to do. And you have to take that mantle of responsibility. Everybody, not everybody, a lot of people wait to get the marching orders. Companies can't succeed that way anymore in this business. You have got to be disruptive. You can be respective and disruptive at the same time. So tell your boss what to do. Um, third, um, when I was leading uh, the distribution group, it, something hit me. Um, the expectations were really high on us. We had to go out um, with a lot of your companies and get rate increases for our networks. Not easy to do. And um, look, all the things you read about, about late night, no sleep for three days. I've had somebody actually pass out at 2.30 in the morning of exhaustion. This is tough stuff, all right? These are tough negotiations on both sides. No fault of the people negotiating on the other side, right? They're just like us. They're just sort of sent to get in the rowboat, and then you figure out how you're going to get out of the boat. Um, but if, when you find yourself in a leadership position, one of the most important things you can do, because everybody can set strategies and then the bullet points underneath them. Please don't make it read like business speak. Um, anybody can do that. You have got to, when you are in a leadership position, you have got to find the genuine story to lead. Whether you're, it's an innovation or an existing business, you've got to find your voice. And this is very hard to do. 
because I don't think I did a great job of this for a while. But I ended up having lunch with a woman who was in charge of all news gathering for CNN International one day. Sitting um, in the CNN Center, and she's telling me about what was going on in her job. And there was a lot of strife in the Middle East at the time. She had to make the decisions of how close the journalists would go to gunfire. And I'm listening to this, and I'm like, oh, boy, I think negotiating's hard. This is, that's nothing. You're determining life and death. This is serious stuff. And I said, wow, I never realized how easy my job was. And she said to me, no, no, you don't understand. If, if we don't get money in, we can't cover the world. We can't do anything like that. And she sent me a clip that afternoon. And it was um, CNN and Jeeps going into Baghdad after the fall of Gaddafi. And there are hundreds and hundreds of people all chanting, CNN, CNN. It looked like the, really, the Americans going into Paris. It was in World War II. It was fascinating. I played that clip for the division. And I said, look, I know this is, these are hard jobs, right? People don't always say thank you. They just want money to come in. This is hard, right? This isn't, these aren't the glamour jobs. You don't get on the cover of multi-channel news and distribution. You don't do it. I mean, you've got great stories. And I truly believe you get to live an incredible life and see the business unlike anything because we see it through the lens of distributors. Um, so I got the group together, and, and we talked a lot about why we do what we do. Because you've got to give purpose to people. When you are leading them, it is so important to give them purpose. So we talked that day about, uh, we didn't make Casablanca. But when you're driving home today and you see an elderly couple walking arm in arm on the sidewalk, they're talking about watching Casablanca on Turner Classic Movies that night because that was their first date. And you made that happen because you got TCM carried. Or you got kids playing lightsabers in the front yard, and that's because they watch Clone Wars on Cartoon Network. And so we actually put words on the wall, embossed words that said, we make storytelling possible. And we believe that. Because guess what? Doing the deals, it's a lot of zeros. Yeah, it, it'll impress people. Oh, $6 billion. That'll impress them at a cocktail party for about two seconds. You have got to help the people you lead have purpose. And I don't think that's done a lot. It is a really important thing. You have got to find that story because when you lead, that is your job. You have got to give people a reason to rake a razor across their body to come to work to do something. And if you do it, make it phenomenal. Make this, make this have purpose. I, so many of my friends live in boring, dead-end, horrible kind of jobs. A lot of that's leadership. I, I might be able to work anywhere if I had some. I wouldn't. But I might be able to work at the chair company and sell chairs if I had somebody who said, these chairs matter because this poor gentleman's back is so bad and you're going to help him. Give me a story. So when you're in that position, and some of you are, maybe all of you are, do that. That is very important because it's not done enough. Um, have fun in the darkest of hours. There was a um, negotiation that went on years ago. It was not with any of your companies. Um, and it got very tenuous. And we had a 90-minute sort of, it was going to come together are, we're going to go off the air. And by the way, it costs a lot of money when you go off the air. It's not very pretty. Um, and everybody else is in bed, right? Because everybody in the company is like, oh, can't wait to hear it goes tonight. Then they go home, have dinner with their family, they go to bed. And then myself and our little team of hobbits are in there with what feels like the weight of the world of, are they going to wake up and their network's going to be off the air or not, right? So it's not like people are calling in at two in the morning or anything like that. It doesn't work like that. Um, and that's fine because that's not what they're paid to do, right? We're paid to be the ones to figure out how to do this. It's actually the coolest game in the world. It's like solving the Rubik's Cube because you have to work with your distributors and figure out how are we going to get out of this? Your management wants this. Mine wants that. How can we figure this out? It's a great puzzle and an enigma and a riddle. But 
we knew if we went off the air that night, we knew how many millions of dollars it was going to cost us in one week. And you could tell the team was, you know, shaking a little bit, right? I mean, we're, we're making the call. This is a big call. It wasn't that many years ago um, at all. And uh, so we needed to do something because there was a 90-minute silence. They were going to call us back or not. So somebody found some old putters and some old TNT logoed golf balls, and we made a putt-putt golf, golf course in the hallways to relieve the tension. So when you find your colleagues in tense situations, please help them find fun and the levity. And then the last thing I'll say, because I can see that I probably need to shut up, um, someone, uh, uh, when John Martin was in charge of uh, Turner Broadcasting, this very same deal, um, we had lunch a couple days later. And he said, uh, wow, because I'm telling a story. <laughs> it was like you were, we were right there in the abyss. Um, and he said, well, so how did you get it done? What did you guys do? You know, by the way, none of this was ever me. I'm glad that camera's going because I will tell you, the distribution team at Turner, they are absolutely the best. I had the good fortune of being Phil Jackson and acting like I'm coaching Michael Jordan and people like that and the Chicago Bulls. They are absolutely phenomenal because they're ethical, honorable, and smart, and just wonderful fun to work with. So that's on tape. So one, maybe, maybe they'll see that. I tell them all the time, but hopefully they'll get to hear it again. Um, but anyway, Martin said, how did, how did the deal get done? You know, and so you envision, right, you, swords and pistols and the bow of the ship and flags and cannons, and there is all that. That's not what got the deal done. I said, you know what got the deal done? I'll give you one word, affection. And he sort of looked at me like, affection. And I said, because the team has such great affection and respect for each other that with no sleep, 48 hours no sleep, which is not easy to do, by the way, um, some really bad food at three in the morning, a couple nights in a row, they would not let each other fail. They would not. It wasn't like, you know why we're here? Because you didn't think of that. If you'd done, it, they never turned on each other. It was amazing. These are, you know, in the world of business, these are very very, very intense crucibles that you're getting cooked in. They never turned on each other. And they never turned on each other because of that affection. And that, that is up to all of you. You've got to build an environment. Whether you're innovating or you're running the business, you have got to do that. That's all that people will care about. So when you've done this and worked for all these years and you're up talking to a class years from now and you're looking back, it will be those kind of moments that will make you say, that's why this was worth it. Whatever I did, you don't want to... You're here because you're not droning on. You're here because you want to change your companies. And I think it's great there's a place like the Cable Center. I've supposed to have been here two other times. I always couldn't do it because I was in negotiations. I'm locked in some bad conference room. Um, what a great place to learn. It's a phenomenal program. I will start the way I started. I am envious of where you are, that you got to come here, that you're where you are in your careers. There are so many phenomenal things in front of this industry. Um, there's a language that is new. I feel like someone who speaks this language, and I'm learning now to speak a tech language I never have before, and other things. You'll be masters at all that, no matter what you do, because that'll drive a lot of this. But as you do it, think about that. It will, you know, that'll hopefully stay in your head too. Think about those moments, because it really comes down to a handful. Out of 24 years at Turner, there are a handful that just made me go, still. I mean, my knees are still thinking. Think about Ted yelling um, at me that day. So with that, if you have any questions, I will be glad to answer them. If you don't, you can come up and get diplomas earlier. So, up to you. Thank you.
No questions? Oh, we have questions. Okay, see, look, somebody always has to go first. It's like, God, I'm going to throw this guy line. No, it really is okay if you don't. What do you got? This will be easy. What do you see as some of the greatest, most recent innovations that have come out in the space of cable? Um, I'll go back to the X1 because I think they continue to make the X1 box just better and better in the process. Um, I think everyone's... It sounds like I'm working for Comcast. Um, I think for Comcast, I, 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 look, I love Comcast. Like, I, I cox me to Comcast, everybody. I, I love my distributors. These things get rough and tough. have no business without distributors. Um, I think there's a... I look at innovation that comes sort of in the mindset of what it's like. So I've, I've been following just X1 all along, not only voice activation, but the fact that now Netflix is in that box, um, that YouTube is in that box. And this is from a company that owns cable and broadcast networks and movie studios. So to me, the innovation comes in, how am I using technology to help drive it? I think um, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of surprised I haven't, or we haven't seen more from Apple. You know, either they're going to get in the content business, they're going to do this. That doesn't really happen. Um, I think the innovation is coming in sort of in the steps of how people are starting to build their kingdoms differently. A little bit of, here's a plug for HBO, Game of Thrones. Um, it's a little like you look at Disney buying Fox. That's very strategic. I mean, at the end of the day, because they're both very smart companies, um, for them to announce that they want to go direct to consumer means that they are going to have to now become very creative because they would be foolish to walk away from their existing business. So they're going to have to figure out how they're going to survive in the process. So to make the statement, I know it's not here yet, um, I think is very important. Um, uh, our new head, John Stanky, just made a, a statement today that we're going to do the same thing at Warner Media. We're going to go direct to consumer, um, work with distributors in the process, want to do it with distributors. I think you're going to see it come like that because we're, we're, we're not at an inflection point in technology. It'll continue to change. Let me talk real briefly about content experiences. This is an initiative that I've been working on for about a year. And it, it sounds like such a pixie dust name, content experience. I think mean, there's some little Tinkerbell music in the background. It's not like that. This is about a map. This is about looking at what can Turner currently do in their tech lab? Because you've got great technicians who can build things. So if, you, if, you, if it was up here on the board, look, going this way, it'd be here are all the things we can do. We can build. Different experiences and people are you know, on a phone or this screen and what they're doing with content. I'm answering the innovation here. Um, with all of those, and then we looked at what do the networks want to do? And here's what the networks think they want to do to become more relevant because the idea of a 24-scheduled linear network is it's still here. It's not that it's archaic, but there are a lot of things around it and different ways to experience it. Um, so, for example, after all these years of going and saying, hi, I want you to carry Cartoon Network to X percent of your subs, and people go, well, what about homes that don't have Cartoon? Well, I still want you to carry it because I've got Adult Swim. Um, maybe we should go and have different versions of Cartoon Network based on ages in the homes. Maybe we should have streaming versions, on-demand versions. If we look at that and we say, what's in the lab, what the networks want, what do distributors and platforms want to do with their platforms? What are they technically capable of doing and what is their roadmap? And then we looked at, uh, we did a lot of research on the pay TV subscriber. And we broke it into seven groups, from the keepers, who are going to keep paying cable because this is just part of their life and they're going to do it, uh, to the people who add services, about 11% of the market, and they add everything. They'll add over the top, they'll add Espod, you got cutters, you got shavers, you got new entrants, you got nevers. And so I, that's our innovation right now. We're looking to try to say, what are we going to do differently to change the experience outside of a linear network? Doesn't mean you walk away from a linear network, but we have to look at it now and say, that can't be enough because 
kids are experiencing things differently. I mean, they just, look, ratings go down on linear networks because kids want to watch what they want to watch when they want to watch it. So our goal in every network goal and distributor goals is what we have in common is a subscriber and that viewer. We always think of it as our viewer, it's the distributor subscriber. So how do we, how do, we do this and how do we share enough data so we can do a better job of serving the customer base? So as we look at it, that's part of our innovation push is we are now, we've said this for a long time, right? It's really easy to go, I'm going to put the customer at the center, fan first. You can say that all day long. At the end of the day, the customer pays us all. That person who says, I'm going to sign up for Mediacom or Wide Open West, whatever it happens to be, they pay you, you take some out and send it to us. So we've got to get closer. And I think if we don't do it because Netflix has changed behaviors. I mean, how many people in here have Netflix? It's not, it's not bad. We all, we, you know, come on. Right, right. Can we X that out? I'm just kidding. Uh, I think it's a phenomenal service because they have done something magic because they, without, I've never seen them do this in marketing, but what they've done is that they respect your most important commodity, which is time, right? They don't tell you to watch at eight o'clock on Thursdays. They don't do that. They may tell you Stranger Things is coming back, but they're not going to tell you, and when it's coming back, but they're not going to tell you when to watch it necessarily. So they respect the time, and I think that sets a phenomenal um, bar for those of us in the content business working with distributors to figure out how, how do we emulate that? Now, they've got a different business model. So does Amazon, right? I mean, it's not that they're not making the money you're making, you know, I mean, they, or the profit you're making, they don't have your margins, but that will change, I think, everyone's thinking of, in the content side of the business, of what am I going to do different? Because the only constant is 24 hours. You know, Quanta Parker and the Comanches had 24 hours a day. You've been listening to an Entrepreneurship Academy session with Coleman Breland, part of the Cable Center's podcast series, Stories from the Head End. For the Cable Center, I'm Diane Christman. The Cable Center is a nonprofit industry organization that connects people and ideas to advance innovation. Today's podcast was produced by the Cable Center and made possible through generous underwriting provided by the Cable TV pioneers. Supervising producer and writer is Leela Kakoris. Please join us again soon. Mm-hmm.